In third grade, I helped establish the Bully Free Council at my middle school, and I even wrote a song called The Bully Free Blues, written from the experience of what it felt to get bullied. When you look at the things I did in middle school and high school, it's almost like I was made for this. Hello, and welcome to the Multicultural Millennial Woman Podcast. My name is Parthvi. And I'm Anya. On this podcast, we'll be talking about the issues we face as we navigate America. From my perspective as a Black Caribbean immigrant from Trinidad and Tobago. And my perspective as a first-generation Indian American whose family is from Gujarat. We'll be talking about everything that affects a multicultural millennial woman. From people choosing not to ask how to pronounce our names correctly in the workplace. Hello, corporate America. To how colorism shows up in our communities. To similarities in how our parents raised us and how that impacts how we move through the world. Basically, nothing is off the table. Ooh, I just got goosebumps. So if you're looking to join us as we share how we're making our own in big ol' USA, pull up a chair. Bring your chai, Milo, or whatever you're sipping on, and tune in as we spill some American tea. And we're back. Today we're talking to Evelis Morales, a powerhouse of a woman. When Parthi and I mentioned multicultural millennial woman, Evie's eyes perked up. That's me, she said. <laughs> Evie was born in Germany, and by the time she was nine, had lived in Puerto Rico, in Germany, in Washington State, and in Connecticut. She understands what it means to straddle several identities and try to make sense of who she is in the midst of all that. It's one of the reasons we wanted to interview her. The other reason why we're Evie fans is that she is actually not just dropping buzzwords for fun here, revolutionizing how creative agencies run their businesses. Evie is the CEO and co-founder of Bombilla, which is a Puerto Rican Spanish word for light bulb. It's a branding and design agency on a mission to spark change through creativity, collaboration, and community. As someone who spent 10 plus years in social good PR and advertising, she is currently leveraging Bombilla to redesign what the workplace looks like. Hint, her hiring plans focus on women of color, the differently abled, and others who have typically been mistreated in corporate America. Are you fangirling yet? We sure are. Let's get this conversation going so that you can finally meet Evie. Hi, Evie. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to be here. I'm excited for today's conversation. Hi. So we love to see that you are a proud Afro-Latina. What was your experience growing up as a third culture kid? Yes, thank you. Such a great question to kick things off. My parents were born and raised on the beautiful island of Puerto Rico, and um, to this day, the majority of my extended family is still out there. And so I'm the first granddaughter of a big lot. (laughs) There's more than two dozen of us. And I would say being the eldest and being the eldest girl on top of that woman, I've had to be a trailblazer. And a part of that has included navigating the world that is the United States of America, 
from a standpoint that my parents couldn't relate to, given that they were born and raised in the countryside. My dad joining the U.S. Army was our ticket off the island with that career opportunity. It moved us around. I was born in Germany. I lived in Washington State, in Connecticut. I kept the trend going as an adult and kept moving my roots, which is cool because I get to call a lot of different places home. But ultimately, being a hybrid of what my parents knew and know and where they're coming from and their language and culture and heritage and what my experiences were growing up in America, there were definitely clashes and tensions. But I also think that the identity that stems from all of this is what has shaped me as a person, has shaped my career and my pursuits and certainly my business. Yeah, we love that. I mean, I think Anya and I can both relate to that in terms of balancing multiple cultures. Absolutely. I grew up in Trinidad. I grew up in the Caribbean. I was there till I was 19. Gave myself a shock, both culturally, mentally, spiritually, and physically, because I moved to one of the coldest places, in my opinion, in America, which was Boston. (laughs) And so definitely have felt from that age that I've been straddling two worlds and confronting people's expectations of what an immigrant is supposed to do and supposed to act like and supposed to reach for and supposed to dream about and then trying to navigate that with my own expectations for myself and my own desire to go where I wanted to go and to downplay other people's expectations of who they thought that I should be. So I absolutely empathize with what you're saying. It absolutely resonates with me. I think what comes out from that, I think, is identity. So I think when it comes to identity, a big part of it is shaped in our high school and our college years. So can you share more about how your high school experience and your college experience shaped you as a person and contributed to who you are today? I like to joke and say that I'm a walking identity crisis because it is hard to put me in a box. And this world loves putting us inside of boxes and Mm -hmm. technically check off on a lot of them. So part of me feels like stepping away from all of it. And I think because of my perspective and my experiences, I'm able to disassociate and detach myself, which I think in a way speaks to my ability to empathize and connect across difference and make friends of different cultures, ethnicities, and heritages. And so because I moved around a lot, because I was a military kid, I always found myself in racially and ethnically diverse environments. It wasn't until I went to college where I got the culture shock of being in a primarily all-white and wealthy environment. When I think about it, to be honest, like a majority of the white folks were my teachers, had friends of all backgrounds. We had folks who were of Indian descent, Brazilian, Puerto Rican, Nigerian, Black. Yeah, college was a huge culture shock. And I think when I was in high school, I closely identified with my heritage and my nationality and my culture. So I was very, very proud of being Puerto Rican and had to remind everybody I was Puerto Rican and I had the flag everywhere. And, you know, Puerto Ricans are known to be very 
prideful of our flag. Once upon a time, it was illegal to fly it because it was seen as a sign of resistance. And so there is power behind that symbol. And I think another thing to know is that don't sleep on Connecticut. Connecticut is more diverse than people would assume. Like, yes, there are corners of it where it's white and wealthy. But if we look at numbers, I wouldn't be surprised if Connecticut is considered like a little Puerto Rico. (laughs) Because we're between Massachusetts and New York, which are also hotspots. For Boricuas, there's naturally a spillover. So there's like two Puerto Rican parades a year. Puerto Rican Spanish is the default. (laughs) So when I arrived to Boston for school, all of a sudden it shifts from being Puerto Rican to being Latina in an environment where like we're one of few. It almost became like out of solidarity. I focus on identifying with the broader culture, the Latino student group on campus, Alianza Latina, was where I found a lot of my friends who are still close friends to this day. My first work-study job at the Howard Thurman Center for Race, Culture, and Ethnicity, that was where I found a lot of my friends because Boston University, I, I can't speak to what it's like today, but at the time, you would walk down the street and be in class and be the only which was unnerved. But it gave me, honestly, a a taste test and practice for the corporate world. So yeah, so once I got into the corporate world, that's when things got really interesting and realized that basically encountering white folks who haven't done the work and getting, again, yet again, another culture shock that there's so much more to be battling when you show up to work. It's not just do your job that you're getting paid for. After having lived in the Bay Area for six years, I definitely got radicalized, if you will, out here. So I have the language, right? Now I know what white supremacy means, <laughs> microaggressions and things like that, and implicit bias. But like at 21, 22 years old, I didn't know that's what I was working up against. I just knew that I was working up against something And at the time, I I could only label it as like, well, this is what it's like to work in an all predominantly white environment with folks who are a different social class than me. And if I think too much about it, I I can't deny that it doesn't impact self-esteem and mindset sometimes. And I have to remind myself that that's part of the game. Yeah, I think everything you said is so relatable in terms of even surrounding yourself by diverse people as you grew up, you didn't have that specifically. But as I got older, I continued to surround myself with people like that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> really was just silently snapping my fingers, Evie, as you were talking. I don't know if the, everyone knows this, but I also went to BU for undergrad. And when you were like, I would be the only one in the class, I mean, oh my goodness, there are so many classes that I would go into with like 50 people where I wouldn't just be the only black woman, I would be the only woman of color. Mm -hmm. I would go into lecture halls (laughs) where 400 people, I could count on one hand, two hands, how many people of color, much less black people were in the room. So it definitely was a shock for me. Especially, I didn't grow up 
in the States. I grew up in the Caribbean, which is predominantly, Trinidad is predominantly Black and Indian specifically. So I definitely understand that and really empathize with being like, oh my goodness, I'm I'm so different. I feel so different all the time. Everybody knows who I am because I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to touch on what you started talking about. You said you moved around a lot and you were able to see things from a lot of different perspectives, moving from a place that was more middle-class and had a bigger pool of people of color and then going to Boston University, which was shocking for me too, like how wealthy it was and how much wealth <laughs> was at BU. Mm-hmm. And also going to a place that that was really white. Do you feel like seeing people and having the opportunity to spend so much time in like different pockets of privilege and money and ethnicity and nationality and culture? Do you feel like if that drove your desire to work in social good, how did you get there? Yeah, so... I have been using my creative skills for social change since in third grade, I helped establish the Bully Free Council at my middle school. And I even wrote a song called The Bully Free Blues, written the experience of what it felt to get bullied. When you look at the things I did in middle school and high school, it's almost like I was made for this. In high school, I had the opportunity to participate in an entrepreneurship program that taught me the basics of business. And we were tasked to create a business plan. And my business plan was, um, it was called Trans Talk, inspired by my grandmother, who English is her second language. She's not fluent in it, yet she's going to doctor's appointments and handling social security matters on her own and without an interpreter. And so I saw that as an opportunity to help people. And one thing I've learned is that just because people are of low means doesn't mean that they always want a handout. There is value in exchanging goods and services, and there's dignity in that too. And so realizing that How might we provide the support, make sure people aren't getting taken advantage of in these conversations, that nothing is lost in translation and make a business out of it. And so without me even knowing what the word social enterprise was, I had created one, but no one told me to do it that way, if that makes any sense. And so the best part of that project was putting the brand together. And I still have, I still have like those artifacts I made. I used Microsoft Publisher. I made a bilingual <laughs> brochure with, you know, purple and pink as the lead colors and whatnot. And so that entrepreneurship class inspired me to pursue public relations as a major. My first job out of college is at Cone Communications, which was started by Carol Cone, who is also a BU alumna, isn't there anymore or at the time. She's known as the mother of cause marketing. So I was at the agency that invented the business strategy of using corporate citizenship and philanthropy and marketing to drive awareness and fundraising dollars to nonprofits and issues. And also it gives a good brand halo effect, right? So what's neat is that now in 2020, Corporate social responsibility is 
expected mm-hmm. and a non-negotiable, whereas before it was optional. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like racial justice and diversity is now the new CSR because back in 2012, when I started doing this work, we had to convince CEOs why it was a good business strategy to cut a check to nonprofits. Mm. Yeah, they thought it would hurt their bottom line, but it's like, no, no, no. If you show customers that you are a responsible company inside and out, they will be loyal to you. They will come back and be repeat customers. They will refer you. If your employees believe in your mission and vision and your values and how you operate, that also leads to a stronger bottom line. So these same kind of persuasive conversations that had to be had at the C-suite level, I see it mirrored with what corporations are dealing with today. Wow. These are such amazing experiences that you've had, but more importantly, these takeaways. I feel like there's just so much to unpack here. We had an interview with Nima and it just reminded me of the concept of the parallel place of power where like, yes, you didn't want to get involved with politics, but there are other ways that you can do things to help and do something for the greater good without necessarily being in those specific roles. Yes. I love, I love that concept, real place of power. What I tell everybody is that we need players in all positions. What's pretty neat is that as a result of my career experiences and who I serve today as clients, I, I have a 360 view. Like across sector, you know, in order to make change, you need the public sector, the private sector, and the social sector. You need organizers and activists and artists on the ground, and you need corporate change agents and government change makers to disrupt from inside. My mentor encouraged me to think about, like, how do I want to make change, right? Like, you can build generational wealth for you and your family if it's change. Taking on that six-figure job will enable you to cut bigger checks that you don't need to serve as board members. That's still change. Like you don't have to be on a starving artist budget or a nonprofit budget and stay there if you have bigger visions for yourself. I really do enjoy using my creative skills for things that matter. And also, I enjoy learning about different social and environmental issues and seeing the connections on how they're all interconnected and tied. So it's like I get to geek out and nerd out and play with what I know I'm good at, which is writing, ideation, team building, creative collaboration. So that's why I stayed in the agency world, because it's a creative playground where if you're a generalist and you're multi-passionate and multi-talented, like you'll stay busy. The downside of the creative agency environment is how oppressive it can get with the expectations and the culture and the power dynamics that you end up in with clients. So I think it's really great that you pointed that out, Evie. We also fell in love with the concept of a parallel place of power when Nima, who is a Georgetown law student, spoke to us about that. Especially because I think it's easy to focus on the change makers at the front, the ones that have the spotlight on them, the ones that are the newspapers are writing about and talking about. But really, it takes a village to make change. 
even as simple as the people who are cooking the meals and making the sandwiches and providing the water for the protesters, for example, like all those people are a part of the revolution. We need everyone. Everyone has a role. And I also love that you say that you don't necessarily have to struggle to the ground <laughs> to be able to make a change. I love that you were able to recognize that, hey, like I'm not feeling fulfilled in this nonprofit sector, but nonprofit is not the only place that I can make a difference. It's not the only place where I can build generational wealth. It's not the only place that I can help people that I want to help. And I think that's actually a really important message for me, I think it's an important message for the people who are listening because so often we're told that our worth and our value is in our sacrifice and in being sacrificial. What you're saying is that, no, you can make a change and make a difference and be able to rest and be able to find something that brings you joy while you're pushing through with that change. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And so I would also add Because of my childhood dynamics and having been the trailblazer and pioneer in my family in a lot of ways and being an older sister at that, I definitely carry a lot of responsibility and high expectations on my shoulders. It's almost like all of those experiences have sharpened me into excellence, but then that also means I can overcommit to be overzealous and ambitious and burn myself out. For example, when it came to the creative agency environment, I go hard. So I'm a professional athlete. I will step up to the plate. I'm self-taught in graphic design. And I brought that to the table as an added skill set. So, you know, next thing I know, People inside the company wanted me for different things. And I said yes to everything because they tell you to say yes to everything. And I was also working at the time, this was my last job, in really serious issue areas. One of them was primarily disaster mitigation. So day in and day out, I was reminded of all of the pretty flavors of natural disasters and man-made disasters that we're always at risk at, particularly here in California. And it was also 2016. So I burned myself out physically to a point where I had to take time off from work. And once I realized that I was kind of going through the motions, right? I was starting to think about MBA grad school, but why? Mm. I could get a degree (laughs) in capitalism because that's what people expect of me. And then I didn't want anyone's job. I wasn't interested in even fighting for a promotion. And that's when I realized I'm only 27. I was encouraged and inspired to step out full-time as a freelancer. But as you can see, I jumped from, you know, one of the world's biggest agencies to then ambitiously building my own business. So (laughs) I tend to carry that thread with me, but it's all, it's all for the sake of something better. And what's amazing about marketing is that it's interdisciplinary. It's both an art and a science. It involves psychology, it involves anthropology, sociology, a pulse on current events and pop culture. And 
a number, you know, a dozen and one creative skills underneath all of that that you can learn or use or get better at, whether that's writing, performance art, podcast editing, speech writing, designing. I geek out when it comes to creative careers. I think it's more accessible than folks realize. And there is a barrier established by essentially white supremacy that keeps folks from pursuing these careers. But I think the internet has definitely democratized that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, I absolutely like resonate with everything you said in regards of like feeling burnt out and all of that. But like, I guess I wanted to really ask, is that what drove your decision to start your own company? Yeah. So it was one of the driving reasons. My doctor said I had to find a new situation. Hmm. Or else I wasn't going to get better because I was dealing with such chronic stress and had been complaining about it for a while that once it hit the fan, it was clear that it's my job that was triggering me. Hmm. I had to take time off to stop working. So what's so beautiful is that one of our current clients actually works on advocating for federal paid leave policy because the U.S. is the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have one. And so my employer Mm -hmm. had a paid leave policy that I was able to take to not worry about my income and to not worry about showing up to work for a couple weeks was such a blessing because being able to slow down and not do anything and just be made me realize that barking up the wrong tree and so I knew that even applying to a new job somewhere else I was going to end up eventually unhappy realizing that I'm too visionary for these places yes building this business is speaking to my strengths it's helping me grow in areas that I'm not as strong at it keeps me intellectually engaged and I'm on purpose and I'm bringing others along with me and creating jobs, which is pretty cool. Yes. I I mean, to me, it's obvious that you are doing amazing. And the older we get, we realize that everyone, everyone is figuring it out as they go along. So it's almost refreshing to hear you say that and not really scary because I'm like, she's doing great things, amazing things. And she's also still figuring it out. So that's exciting. And I also think it's amazing. I see that you've hired at the very least 24 people at your agencies. Even that's exciting. You are focused on creating jobs for people who are extremely talented and and have the potential and can do the work, but probably are barred from the ability to do that in traditional agencies. So you're saying that it's tough work and it's hard, but it's what you think you're meant to do. It's the thing that makes you hashtag lit on purpose to see one of your hashtags. But I'm interested to know, like, what has been the hottest part of leading Bombilla since you started it? Building a business is isolating. If you're thinking about building a business, consider partners, co-founders, because what what ends up happening, right, is like as the solopreneur, the main visionary, people expect me to have all the answers. And I and and I don't. These past three years, I haven't 
really unplugged. Like even when I go on vacation, vacation to me just means I look at my email and don't answer. <laughs> and I might have meetings, but this is my baby. Like, can I truly just forget about it? And it could be overwhelming and overbearing. And also because it's kind of like all in my head, there are some days and some seasons where it's like, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> but I can't just like put it down and walk away. I mean, you know, people dissolve businesses all the time and I'm not there yet at all. But realizing that kind of just because I am in love with it and I am building it doesn't mean I feel that way every day. Carrying all of that liability and responsibility as a as a team of as one person makes it isolating. So I was working on the loneliness and isolation piece. Now with COVID, of course, everything's virtual. I have a few business communities that I meet with regularly, but you also need business friends because your friends and your family and your loved ones, they might get sick and tired of you talking about business. Mm-hmm. It's good to like talk business with business friends. Yeah. I see what you're saying in terms of building a business is isolating. But I also want to touch on like what you said about being a leader, which I think is amazing. You do say that people are expecting you to have the answers all the time and people are expecting you to have the plan. But I do think the fact that your business is still alive and still floating and still hiring people and still accepting clients, it means that you to some extent do have the answers and you to some extent do have the plan. And I just like want to like spread that message out to people, not just to people who want to be entrepreneurs, but it's like in your everyday life, we're just figuring it out as we go along. But if you can believe in yourself an extra 5%, I'm not like a positivity solves everything type of person. But if you can just believe in yourself an extra 5%, there are things that you can make happen. I also think what's really great about what you're saying, Evie, is that you're so open about the fact that you seek help and you seek support. I think too, like so many times with multicultural women, especially, we don't do that. We're everyone's help. We're everyone's support. We're the people who expected to give the sacrifice. The fact that you said that you were seeking out a doctor when you were feeling overly stressed and you talked about a mentor a couple of times and you talked about going to therapy a couple of times. So I think that's so exciting. And it just gives me hope no matter what the world throws at us and the world throws a lot at us that we can make it if we support each other and if we just, no matter what the world says, we leave in ourselves like an extra 5% because with that extra 5%, we can really get to believing in our true power and our true magic and make the change we want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautifully said. And Speaking of that 5%, one thing that my friend point out to me is because I'm always forward thinking and a problem solver and action oriented, I'm always focused on the 5% that I haven't completed. Mm. Instead of celebrating the 95% of what I've accomplished and achieved. Yeah. I also see this online my fellow black and brown Mm. friends that like we're we go hard in everything we do we give 110 percent which is at our own expense and 
even if we operated at our 90%, it still looks like 100% to the outside. Building a business definitely kills perfectionism because if you drown in perfectionism, your business can fail. And business mistakes are expensive, let me tell you. (laughs) But this is all part of the game. And so I surround myself with people I call mentors, right? So they could be peers, they could be business elders or folks who have been running their businesses longer than I have, people who have known me for a long time, old managers and bosses, like people who are invested in and believe in me and who I can feel comfortable sharing what I'm struggling with. And the more I share and the more I learn from others, it's like some of these business quote problems, quote, quote, are just regular business dealings. One day, you know, someone, I'm going to be involved in a lawsuit. I'm not trying to call it into existence, but it's a, that's like a normal business activity. That's why you have attorneys on retainer <laughs> and why you have, you know, bylaws and governance policies and all this other stuff. So with every frontier of business, there are new things to learn. There are people who've been there, done that. Definitely. So just want to switch gears here and ask a big question. So this year, specifically in reference to the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, it's made many companies scramble to show that they're in solidarity with Black people and that they care. To us, it seems more reactive as a business strategy rather than a genuine desire or a plan for change. And you've been wanting to create diverse Mm -hmm. and ethical company for a long time. And we'd say that you've been actually doing this. So what's your take on these companies' DNI initiatives? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, Racial justice is the new frontier in corporate citizenship and corporate responsibility. And it's taken until 2020 for the creative industries to deal with their reckoning. And it's pretty wild it's taken this long, right? Because I feel like when I moved out here to the Bay in 2014, it was all you read about in the news when it related to the tech industry. But the creative and design industries are tangential to technology, but somehow they were under the radar. So now all the top agencies across all the creative disciplines and just the creative field in general, you think about art schools and what the demographics look like, there is an issue of access. There are barriers to entry. And I feel like what we have seen, unfortunately, is a lot of companies, there's a term called pinkwashing, where companies in the month of October would turn everything pink and everything donated to breast cancer and whatnot. It's like, you have to pay attention to the fine print because sometimes things that look pink aren't really donating to pink causes. (laughs) That's really interesting. We actually haven't heard of this term before. Then there's greenwashing, right? So the fake marketing of things as environmentally friendly when they're not. And I feel like now 
there's racial justice washing where a lot of companies are putting out statements and kickstarting initiatives and donating dollars, but it's because it's timely. It's because they're being held accountable and they're being asked questions. So the true marker is how are you embedding this into your business strategy? What are you doing across all of your business units? How are you working on this from the ground up? And unfortunately for a lot of these big companies, it might make or break them. They're going to be left behind. If anything, they already are being left behind because smaller agencies are not only are we more nimble and bring more like creative fresh air (laughs) to work, we're also solving that gap that these agencies can't even if they threw all their money at it. It's one thing to make sure that your hiring pool is diverse and that these folks make it through the interview process. It's another to keep them in your company. It's another to deal with clients who potentially haven't done the work and are harmful in their manner of doing work. You know, I commend people who are like those corporate anti-racist change makers who are on the inside because it's like the belly of the beast. I mean, the workplace is where everybody comes together from different upbringings. To be in a corporate environment and be responsible for nudging people along their race journey, it's a big undertaking. And I think these companies don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So similarly, you know, there's an industry for diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants for tech. And now that's booming for the creative industries. And so for Black and Brown-owned creative agencies, like I'm so, so excited by the number of us that are cropping up. We definitely hold the upper hand and we have the competitive advantage that these agencies don't, which is why the tables turn and they need us in a way more than we need them. And in my conversations with agencies, like I let them know, you know, we, we, we do work a little bit differently. We don't promise unrealistic timelines. We're not in the business of fake urgency. We pay our people well. And we're trying to run the antithesis of what they're trying to do. And like setting, setting the bar and that standard. So true. Being an emerging employer, even starting to hire employees, I'm so hypervigilant because this is where it starts, right? The difference in pay rates and what networks are you promoting the job opportunity to and what culture are you building, especially now where all we've got is Slack assignment Zoom for the time being. So really being mindful of not making the mistakes that these big companies make at such a fundamental foundational part of the business. So I feel like everything that you said can be encapsulated in that one phrase that you shared, racial justice washing. What a poignant but correct way to describe what's happening. At the same time, I also think you have some really great solutions. You are asking the right questions, like how are these companies embedding this into like their structure and their systems? How are they building racial justice into the way they do business? 
And I think more important is who and what is keeping them accountable. That is the question we need to ask. Make that public because you can say a whole lot. There's so many companies that have diversity clauses on their website, but then when you get into their company, it's a different story. And I think you're right. Like the company, like as an entity could be concerned about racial justice. But like you said, there are people coming in from every walk of life. How are you making sure you hire people who care about this? And then keeping not just the company accountable, but people inside of the company accountable. The accountability piece, yeah, public numbers is definitely one way to walk the talk. And there's actually an organization called 600 and Rising that also merged with an organization called Hold the Press. 600 and Rising had a focus on advertising and design and hold the press has a focus on public relations and they merged and basically they've become a coalition of black and brown creatives and allies who are continuing the conversation in this space and they're also coming up with like a framework and a an accountability measure for these agencies Yeah, it's really interesting because it's like with the transparency, you know what you're getting yourself into. So what I'd be curious to see is like, who will want to join your company if I know the real numbers? Yeah, (laughs) There's so much respect for those of us who've had to be and are currently the one and onlys or the one and few. But yeah, it's like now now we have a choice like as a job seeker, right? So I want to bring this full circle, Evie. We started this whole conversation asking you about your childhood and how that impacts who you are today. I'm really curious to to hear from you. Like, what advice would you give her knowing what you know now? I would just like to remind my younger self and younger folks like me that there's nothing wrong with you or there's nothing wrong with me. Advertising as a business function. I'm a geek when it comes to propaganda. I'm of the mindset that if we know how powerful propaganda is and media manipulation and psychological persuasion techniques, you can use that for good or you can use that for evil. You can use it to sell somebody a new pair of shoes they don't need or you can sell somebody the power of choice in living and leading a better life or sell someone the choice to support an issue that directly impacts their day-to-day life. And so with that, right, bad news sells. That's why news is the way it is, right? That's why clickbait like drags you into reading terrible things that then impact your psyche. And with advertising, advertising is in the business of selling you solutions to your imperfections. They convince you that you have imperfections. So like when you think about beauty products, workout clothes, you know, everything that creates FOMO. Now I feel like Instagram gives me FOMO on the plants I don't have and house I don't own. And it's just like, Advertisers laugh, if that makes sense. 
And so I would remind myself that I, I feel like I've spent so much of my life fixing what's wrong or trying to fix what's wrong instead of focusing on what's right. So again, it's that 5%. Instead of focusing on the 95% of amazingness that I am, <laughs> I'm hyper-focused on the 5% that like nobody's even noticing. Because a lot, a lot of times we're self-conscious about things that other people don't even notice. Definitely can relate with that. I think we're always looking at our own flaws, but never giving ourselves enough credit or being kind enough to ourselves in regards of like what we have done and what we did do right so many times. And I think it just, sometimes it comes back from like the immigrant backgrounds, the expectations that we're kind of brought up with. And that kind of nurtures us to always look at ourselves a little bit less positively. Wow. Thanks so much, Evie. I feel like that is a great way to go out with a bang. I think there is nothing wrong with you should be the mantra of the multicultural millennial woman's life. Because you were saying we get so many messages that says we need to be more this, be less that, change ourselves to not, and not just change ourselves because we see room to grow, but change ourselves so that we're more acceptable to like this random person or this random cultural expectation. So yes, first thing, there's nothing wrong with you. Second thing, believe in yourself 5% more. That's all we're asking. And then the third thing is everyone has a role in the change that's going to happen and the change that needs to happen. So find your role and start working. Thank you so much, Evie. Yeah, thank you both. And also... For anyone listening, please feel free to connect with me. I'm on Instagram at I-Z-E-L-L-1-S-S-E. Thank you. Amazing. Please connect with her. And we will see you guys in the next one. Bye for now. Wow. Wasn't that amazing? Yes, I'm really glad we were able to share this conversation because Evie is such an inspiration to so many MMWs. I really feel one of the most powerful parts of her story is that she recognized that she was burnt out and took action to create a life for herself that was sustainable for the long term. For sure. And I can't imagine how difficult that process was for her. It's such a big deal to leave your job and start your own endeavor. Agreed. I think also it's especially hard for Black, Indigenous women of color to admit that they're tired because we have a double dose of, you can do it all, right? It moves beyond, yes, you can, to yes, you need to, because all of these people are expecting the world from you. Oh my gosh, yes. Burnout is so common, and it's often a result of working in corporate America. Surprise, surprise. I feel like you really hit the nail on the head. So thanks for sharing that. So here's how we're thinking. We all can pull actionable insight from Evie's story. You have a few options. So number one is, if you have that entrepreneurial spirit, start working on building your own ethical company. Option two is seeking out companies like Bombilla if you want to support a mission like Evie's and work for a company focused on reimagining the workplace. And lastly, support Black Indigenous women of color ventures. Not everyone can have the bandwidth, support, or option to leave their job. Or hell, maybe despite the craziness, you really enjoy it. But we believe that you can always be more intentional about where we spend our money. 
So that's why we're encouraging you to do so. Seek out businesses like EVs and either open up the checkbook or refer your friends to them. Okay, MMWs, that's it for us today. Check out the show notes for more businesses like EVs so that you can support today and in the future. And if we missed any, please DM us on Instagram at the MMW podcast and we'll add them in. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day filled with chai, Milo, or our personal favorite, wine. Bye.